Jeroboam doesn't take a warning very well, does he? You remember in chapter 13 that Jeroboam was warned about what was coming. You remember that even earlier when he was first given the promise that there would be part of the kingdom given to him, a large part of the kingdom given to him, that there was a warning involved then too that there was the requirement that he was to live the way that David lived. And that if he was obedient, that he would be given a lasting legacy the same way that David was. Well, he has not taken these things to heart. And now he's come to the time in his life where suddenly he wants something from God. The God that he has been ignoring, the God that he has been turning people away from, the God that he has pretended to worship while setting up golden calves, the only God that can actually answer his prayer, the only God that can actually hear him and respond, because all the gods of the nations are idols, and so he can't go to the golden calf and he can't ask the golden calf, will my son live or please heal my, go- my son? He's stuck, isn't he? Now all of a sudden, he wants something that only God can give. The God that he has been busy making an enemy of, the God that he has been busy ignoring, the God that he has been refusing to hear and to obey and to listen to, though prophets, plural, have been sent, Well, he can't go to the prophet that told him what was coming when the altar was split, right? Because that prophet's dead. But of course, I don't think he would have wanted to go to that prophet anyway, because that prophet only gave him bad news. Ahijah, that's where it's at. Ahijah's the guy who gave him the good news that he was going to become king in the first place. Now, what I want you to see is that, yes, he's recognizing that God is the one who must answer him, that God is the only one that can give him a true answer. But he is still trying to manipulate God. And this is something that we are all tempted to do in our lives we are tempted to turn and twist things in the way that we approach them in order to get what we want. One of my favorite things to do is to think of all of us as little children because we are little children Before God, aren't we? One of the ways that it can help us to see our own behavior is to look at the behavior of children. And so, children, have you ever thought very carefully about how you can get your parents to give you what you want? Have you ever thought about that? And changed your strategy about how you will ask? Or have you ever yelled at one of your siblings, your brothers or your sisters, for going and asking the wrong way? This is something that I overhear on a somewhat regular basis. Why did you go ask him? You know that if we don't, if before the, then we can't do. Did you know I hear you guys saying that?
It's interesting, isn't it, the way that manipulation comes right up next to obedience and can be hard to tell the difference between? Would it have been manipulation if Jeroboam had simply done what God said, obeyed, been as King David was over the people? No, it wouldn't have been manipulation at all, would it? And yet he would have gotten what he wanted. A lasting kingdom, a legacy. His son sitting on the throne and his son after him. I was talking to a mom recently who described her son going around vacuuming the living room, vacuuming the stairs, wiping the table, cleaning up things in the kitchen, putting everything away, and coming up to her, Mom, can I play Wii? Now, how do you tell manipulation from obedience? You understand, that that can sound like manipulation, right? Or, on the other hand, this child just knows These are the things that are required before I'm allowed to play we, so I'm doing them. If I go and ask to play a video game when there's all kinds of housework that needs to be done, the answer is obviously going to be no, I may as well just do the housework, then I might have a chance to play we. Jeroboam is manipulating God. How does does Jeroboam manipulate God instead of Obeying God. Well, one of the things is that he is dishonest. He's dishonest. And manipulation is almost always starting out with dishonesty. Do you see what he does? First, I think what we see is him picking Ahijah because Ahijah had given him good news in the first place. right? So he's, he's being selective about who he asks. But then what does he do? He tells his wife to go. He knows, Hijah knows what he looks like because they had a rather memorable interchange with one another. But Hijah's probably never seen his wife. So, you know, take off your royal robes and stuff and just go as a normal woman who's concerned about her son and, and beg the prophet. And, you know, these prophets, they can give really great news. Uh, a mother who loves her son, you know, he'll, he'll want to give you good news. Take a good gift, too. That always helps to butter him up. Jeroboam is actually trying to manipulate God, though, isn't he? Ahijah is the prophet of the Lord. Ahijah doesn't give answers himself based on what he wants. Ahijah gives the Lord's answer. Jeroboam goes back to him, but what Ahijah gave was God's news. And if Jeroboam wants God's news to be good news then Jeroboam has to obey God. That's it, right? If you want the news from God to you to be good news, you've got to obey. Now, the ultimate good news from God is that in spite of our disobedience, He had love for His people and sent His only begotten Son that we could live. That is truly good news, isn't it? And it's in spite of our disobedience. But think about having been given that unexplained, unexpected good news and then having continued in disobedience. Now, 
That's the position that Ahijah is in. If he wanted the good news to continue to be good news, he needed to obey. And it's the same with us. And I don't mean by that that the moment that you sin, your justification, your salvation is lost or is in danger or something like that. What I mean is that if sanctification, if obedience does not come, does not flow out of the work that God has done to save you, there hasn't been that work done yet in the first place. Sanctification flows out of justification. And we cannot trick God with manipulative behavior. That is not sanctification. And it doesn't matter if it includes trying to do the good things that he's told us to do. In, if, if we're trying to do those good things in order to manipulate God, we are not doing them out of faith. We are not doing them out of love of God. But we are doing them out of love of self. We cannot trick God into giving us what we want. It doesn't matter if we have disguises or if we send other people. It doesn't matter if we think that we've found the way that God's Word says this and so now I can be guaranteed of that, right? Think of God's promise to be among His people. Solomon builds the temple, right? We're not that far from the building of the temple. Solomon builds the temple. God says, I'll be among my people. And for the rest of the Bible, what you read is the Jews trusting that because they have the temple, therefore, they've got God's blessing. Jeroboam doesn't even have the temple. Jeroboam has rejected the temple worship. Jeroboam has set up golden calves and he still thinks that he can get what he wants from God. We cannot trick God. God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And that's one of the things that we can't do even as parents. We can know our children well. We can have a feel for their heart. But God knows our heart. And so the mother I was talking to, whose son was cleaning and wanted to play we, she looked at him and she said, I think he was just doing what he knew he needed to do. I don't think he was being manipulative. How sure is she? Not very sure. Or she wouldn't have said that. <laughs> right? God knows, though. You know, the thing is, we can even trick ourselves, but we can't trick God. How often do we attempt to get the answer that we want by only revealing the best possible interpretation of what we are trying to accomplish. So when we go to a friend and we say, you know, I don't know what to do. Do you think I should take this new job or not? And sometimes we don't know. We don't know what we want. We don't know what we should do. Other times, boy, do we have an answer that we want to hear. Right? But we know we're supposed to get counsel. So we go and we get counsel and, and, and we just feed the information into the machine, right? Trying to manipulate our friend to give us just the answer that we want or our pastor or our mother or our father. And you just hope that, the, that that one piece of information that could blow it wide open and reveal what's really in your heart doesn't pop up. 
that that question doesn't come up. Right? I've seen this over and over again in counseling with people. And sometimes they truly have deceived themselves, truly have tricked themselves into thinking that their motivations are good for the answer, the answer that they want. But most of the time, when I am being manipulated as people seek my counsel, and this happens, when I am being manipulated, it becomes as transparent as it is with my children. Because we're just like children. We've still got the same desires. We've still got the same selfishness. We've still got the same motivations. And so it's not that hard to ask, you know, okay, it's so that you can build the kingdom of God. That's why you, that's why you want to go on a short-term mission project to Taiwan. Yeah, you want to build the kingdom of God. That's, that's wonderful. Now you, you had a girlfriend that went to Taiwan a couple months ago, didn't you? Yeah, that has nothing to do with it, though. She's still over there? Yeah. Who's deceived? God's not deceived. Jeroboam doesn't deceive God. Jeroboam doesn't deceive us. It's pretty obvious what he's trying to do. Get the good answer. Get the good answer. Only reveal what you want to reveal that'll, that'll make people feel sorry for you, that'll get you the good answer. So, send the mother of the child. Oh, who wants to be giving a mother bad news? Your, your son is going to die. No, and don't, don't, just, just let her be an anonymous, generic woman. Not the disobedient king's wife. Well, Jeroboam hasn't learned. Just like the sign when he was first warned by the man of God and the altar split. There's an immediate sign for the longer prophecy, right? So it is here again. There's an immediate sign for the larger, longer-term prophecy. The immediate sign is the child will die. The longer-term prophecy is not just the kingdom will be torn away from Jeroboam, but now the family of Jeroboam is going to be cursed and worst of all, the Israelites themselves will be scattered. So the mother receives this message. You think she thought about just running away? But she did. Don't go back to the city. She probably walked slow, don't you think? This is not something that you can avoid. When God's judgment comes, God's judgment comes. Nevertheless, she had one piece of good news to hold on to as she went back.
her son had found favor in God's eyes in a way that her husband had not. Verse 13, all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave, because in him something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. That does not mean that he alone is going to die, right? That's one way that that coming to the grave is used. In this case, it's being used literally. All the rest of Jeroboam's family, all the rest of the men of his house, will not be buried. The blessing of the Lord on the obedient son of Jeroboam is not that he lives. The blessing that God gives is that he is buried, and the rest will not be buried. And the day when we have turned aside from burial as though it is something of a waste, this curse is, or this blessing, is a bit lost on us. Because we don't see the problem with just burning up dead people. Eh, burn him. He's dead anyway. But to not be given a burial is such a shame. To not be given a burial goes beyond the judgment of death. It extends the judgment into after your death. Just as we've spoken of Jeroboam's legacy that he has lost, right, being a curse, that no longer will someone after him, named after him, one of his sons, will not be on the throne, right? All of that's after he's dead. What does he care? I think we begin to understand a little bit better when we realize, oh yeah, as men and women, we care about what happens even after we're dead, don't we? We care whether our children are going to be provided for, don't we? That, that's why we desire to save money as an inheritance to pass on to our children and our grandchildren. Because even though we'll be dead, we care right now about them. And so it is with our bodies that we, as the Israelites, continued to understand at that time, and as Christians have until the last few decades, we understand that to be buried is a blessing. To be burned is a curse. And so God has granted a reprieve, a little piece, a little nugget of hope and of good news to this mother. Her son will be buried. Her son will be mourned. But Jeroboam, what will become of him? Well, he has committed great sin. He has repaid the grace of God with disobedience. God gave him the kingdom and asked simply for him to worship God. Instead, he set up golden calves. He led God's people to false worship and to idolatry. 
And we've spoken a little bit of that in previous sermons. This false worship and idolatry, they're separate, but they, but they come together at those golden calves. Remember, he set up these golden calves the same way that Aaron set up the golden calf to be Yahweh, the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It was the introduction of images into the worship of the true God. Therefore, I call it false worship. And simultaneously, it was idolatry because you cannot introduce images into the worship of the true God without it becoming worship of another God, no matter what you call the God you're worshiping. And so he had introduced false worship and idolatry with one stroke. And he had refused to repent when he was warned. Think, if you've been reading the Bible plan, you know you've read through this stuff already. You think of some of the kings and the way that God answers prayers. You think, they don't deserve that. But he's gracious, isn't he? Think of what he says to Jonah when Jonah gets mad that God is patient and forgives the Ninevites, the great enemies of God's people, the brutal, brutal kingdom. God is a gracious God. He keeps his word, but he forgives. Jeroboam could have repented after the man of God came and warned about the destruction of this false worship that was coming. What a warning that was. Jeroboam, who stretched out his hand and had it wither, and then had it granted back to him when he pleaded with the prophet, pray to God for me. These are the sins that God sees in Jeroboam. And what does he see them as? Filth. It's filth. Verse 9. You have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam Every male person, okay, every male person, raise your hand. Boys, hands up. All right. Every male person, both bond and free in Israel. But does anybody have the King James? Anybody bring the King James? King James here makes clear something that our silly Bible translators decided would be best left a little bit covered. The wording is, he who pisseth against the wall. That's what male person is, literally. Okay, everybody who stands up and pees against the wall. That's who is going to be cut off from the house of Jeroboam. And why leave pee out when the next thing you're going to talk about is poop? That's what I want to know. Both bond and free in Israel. And I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is gone. 
when God starts talking about pee and poop, he's saying Jeroboam's house stinks and I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to clean it up. And you know what, kids? This is why we don't tell potty humor jokes. Because it's not a joke. Any more than we talk about and joke about holy cows or any number of other things that God has made serious. Pee and poop stink. Yeah, they have, they have their place for us to talk about them. One of the ways that they're useful to us in stinking is so that we can understand when God begins to talk about how much Jeroboam's house stinks. God sees these things as filth, stinky. And what in particular? Making for himself other gods and molten images to provoke him to anger and casting him behind his back. Jeroboam cast God behind his back. Therefore, God will cast Jeroboam behind his back. He'll be done with him the way that we can't wait to get rid of poop. Get rid of it quick. Get rid of it all the way. When you step in it, out in the yard, because someone was silly enough to get a dog. You don't just kind of wipe it off real quick and go on with your day, because then everybody around you the rest of the day is going to be like, what is that smell? You got to wipe it all off. You got to get rid of all of it. And that's what God says He's going to do. All the males. All those who pee against the wall. They're all going to be gone. But as if that wasn't bad enough, now for the first time, we're warned that Israel itself will be scattered. And why will Israel itself be scattered? Because of Jeroboam? Well, it's not because of Jeroboam. It's because of what Israel has done. And this is what Jeroboam has done that is so wicked. He has led Israel into, back to, the worship of the Asherim. Now, Jeroboam didn't set up Asherim, he set up golden calves. Asherim were wooden uh, totem poles. You guys ever seen a totem pole? You know, there's a tree left and somebody carves it into an eagle and a bear. Okay, so the Asherim were, were wooden poles that were set up that were worshipped by God's people, the Asherim were images to a false god, to the female deity. The implication, whenever you hear of Asherim is that sex has gotten involved in the worship. So what Jeroboam has done is he's corrupted the worship of God with images which leads to worshiping other gods and images as well. 
And this is always what happens. The moment that we have false worship introduced into the true worship of God, the idolatry comes immediately. We love images of God's. The icons of the Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church are wicked. They're also attractive. I don't know if you guys can imagine or have personally experienced the desire that leads people to worship these kinds of images. There's an element that is simply the ancientness of it. The worshiping of bowing down to and praying to those who have gone before us that have become gathered together and and molded into our our great mother and ultimately what i would say is <clears throat> why worship these images of saints and people who've gone before us when you can just go to the root and worship the earth mother, goddess, Gaia. That'll give you all the feels. All the feels that you can get from all these icons, all these idols. It is attractive. What the people of Israel did is precisely that. They said, hey, you know, this worshiping of the true God by images thing, like trying to mix them both together, two-step process, it's a lot more efficient just to go out on the hill and worship the Asherim. And isn't this always what happens when we try to incorporate some slight idolatry, some little bit of idolatry into our worship? How do we, how do we introduce a little bit of idolatry into our worship? Just make it a false worship instead of a false god. Images are one of the main ways. But these are not limited to the Roman Catholic or the Orthodox Church, of course. Images that have to do with worship in particular The, the Protestant church has long been clear from the very beginning in understanding the damage that introducing images had done to the people. It had prevented the people from worshiping the true God. In large part, we've lost that today, and that concerns me concerns me the way that we have Bible storybooks with pictures of Jesus or pictures of the throne room of God as though somehow the educational benefit is going to override God's command that we're not to make images of Him. 
But beyond that, because after all, these elements are not explicitly in given over for the purpose of worship. Far more concerning to me is the way that we have brought images of men into worship itself. How do we have how do we image have images of man in worship? I've been to hundreds of conferences, Christian conferences throughout the years. You have a worship service, and then you have a giant screen where the man who's preaching is six times as large on both sides of him. And, and who is the man who's preaching? Oh, he's not nobody. Oh, no, he's somebody. And that's why all the people are there. Because he's somebody. Worship is what happens at those events. Worship of God through the golden boy. The golden boy that's been raised up by everybody to say, this is the guy who speaks most clearly. This is the guy who speaks most winsomely. This is, behold, church, behold. You don't need your pastor. Behold, the one who will teach you. You know what happens? It's false worship. And you know what happens? It leads straight to idolatry. Idolatry, worship of other things. Money. Success. Power, influence. These are the things that people begin to worship. And you realize how much it has been false worship, worship of God through an image, if you will. Man being the ultimate image, the image of God having been wrought in us by God Himself. you realize how much worship, how much false worship has been going on when the man falls. Yes, men have been falling since the time of Adam. David himself fell mightily. Solomon more so. But when the people of God find themselves surprised by this, horrified, not just that it happened, but unbelieving that such a thing could ever happen what we realize is they forgot that this was a man. They had begun treating this man as God. Israel is scattered when they begin to worship the Asherim. They begin to worship the Asherim again because 
of the sin of Jeroboam as he seeks to slightly modify the true worship of God. And what happens is that God's anger, God's wrath, the clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam and the scattering of Israel are what are promised. The Lord will strike Israel. As a reed is shaken in the water, and he will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they have made their asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. And so what I want you to see is, I've warned of these, this idolatry of these men beginning to idolize men. And what I want you to see is <clears throat> the way that it's about the loss of success. It's about the loss of influence. It's about the loss of money. These are the things that we're shocked by. These are the things that we're horrified by the falling down of a, of, a, of a kingdom of man, a ministry. What is it that we worship? What is it that we worship? We must not provoke the Lord to anger. Through our disobedience in response to His graciousness. And we must not provoke the Lord to anger through our idolatry. Those who think that what's necessary is the influence of an old established church. I don't have the understanding, the first bit of understanding of what it means to worship the true God who is able from nothing and from nobody to raise up disciples for himself. We don't need the great big cathedral to have God at work in power, do we? As a matter of fact, God has made clear that He works more often and explicitly and intentionally through the weak, the nobodies, the nothing, not many are wise. And yet, how tempting is it for us to say what we really need is a ministry that is well respected among the world? that can show the world how much power and how much influence we can wield. What we really need is enough money that we can really begin to make a difference. If we, if we just had an endowment, We begin, to, we begin to see what we think is important. We begin to see what our idols are. Idolatry does provoke the Lord to anger. And here, like king, like people, like people, like king, Jeroboam and the Israelites... They're together in this, aren't they? And so here comes the clean sweep. And Abijah, his son, is dead. Mourned and buried. Praise God for his mercy. 
but dead. Now let us live in repentance. Let us live without provoking the Lord to anger. Let us not have men raised up as our idols. Images that give us just what we want. Whether they're alive, whether they're motion picture images, or whether they're long dead and they're icon images. Men are images. Let us not worship them. Let us worship the true God, the one who can answer our prayers, the one who is merciful, the one who hears us, the one who can truly answer our prayers. And yes, who is far more intimidating to approach than your mama. And who cannot be intimidated, who cannot be manipulated, but who hears and who is merciful and gracious. Why not go to him? That's where you want to fly. Let's fly to him. Heavenly Father, We have indeed been tempted by idols and have given ourselves over to idolatry in many times and in many ways. Help us, Father, to have pure worship that is holy and pleasing to you. Father, we have this treasure, the good news that you've given us, and it is in jars of clay, it is in us, men and women, made in your image. But Father, may all of our work, all of our proclamation be to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.